Kia ora koutou. Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr. Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Kia ora, Dave. How are you doing? Uh, kia ora. Uh, yeah, not too bad. I'm, I'm having a relaxing day, which is unusual in general practice, but, um, and in my neck of the woods. So we're here for November's snippets for 2024. I'm uh, looking and, forward to it. And unbelievably, it is still November. Yes. Yeah. Let's uh, let's let's kick into it. So this starting uh, this week, or this month, should I say, um, just some practical information that was noted in a recent issue of GP Voice and describing how patients uh, can apply for non-subsidised pharmaceuticals to be included in a disability allowance. I'm not sure whether it actually makes it easier or not, but essentially they say, Windsor's saying yes, which we already know, that you can get um, a subsidy for medications, but they're just confirming that that. Uh, some uh, non-subsidised pharmaceuticals can be included and can be paid for. These include things like melatonin, um, empagliflozin, if they're not eligible for for a subsidy, dulaglutide, lyraglutide, um, medicinal cannabis products, and others. Yeah. But there's a big but. To be considered, it must be confirmed that any subsidised or partially subsidised alternatives are not suitable for your patient. So essentially, what they're saying is, if you're wanting to um, apply for the patient to, to have these non non subsidised medications um, recognised in the disability allowance that they get, you need to provide a letter confirming uh, the reasons for prescribing the non subsidised pharmaceutical um, that there is not a suitable subsidised or partly sub- subsidised alternative. So I presume that would be they're not going to subsidise name brand Losec, which is a hundred bucks every three months, compared to the generic, which is zero every three months that the medication is essential and directly related to the client's disability. If Pharmac funding has been applied for and declined the reasons for this decision, I presume they're referring to special authority. And if there is no suitable subsidised or partly subsidised alternative, and if Pharmac funding has not been applied for, the reasons why funding has not been sought. So it's quite complex. Yeah. I think the... So I have done this for a range of complementary medicines for somebody with irritable bowel syndrome so uh, and they were on things like olive leaf extract and and a whole range of of um of things which they had found was clinically effective and and, and nothing else had worked for them and found that they did manage to get their medications subsidized through the disability allowance i think one of the one of the things about this the disability allowance though is it's capped so yeah. you know once you once you reach a certain monthly income and i'm sorry i don't know what that is and um, then you know they you can't add in your gardening and your um, other prescriptions or whatever else it is as well it just you know there's a there's a limit to how much um uh, you can maximize that yeah so probably only a couple of days of cbd product yes yeah, noting how expensive they are Yes, uh, and I presume it would apply to uh, Rongar medicine as well. Um, absolutely, absolutely. 
but of the um uh, although yeah it'll be interesting um to see how that how that develops uh, into the future because um as that becomes more an accepted part of um, the health system in New Zealand you know we may see other other ways of getting it subsidized other than this sort of workaround yeah perhaps yeah. not in the next 3 years but maybe thereafter <laughs> let's be positive anyway <laughs> let's be positive that um that segues nicely into the recent statement produced by the college on medical cannabis prescribing and i was quite pleased to see this come out because at hdc we do get a, a steady series of complaints from people around their gps not prescribing them uh, medicinal cannabis products when they request them and there's just the pertinent points in the in the statement that the college neither recommends nor encourages the use of medicinal cannabis products, but it recognises that as specialists, we may offer to prescribe medicinal cannabis products and the sole medical, medical legal responsibility for, for prescribing rests with the prescriber. The college has assessed the evidence about safety and effectiveness of medicinal cannabis products that have not been approved as medicines by MedSafe and has found it to be limited and inconclusive. And that kind of ties in with uh, some earlier information we got from, um, I think it was the, uh, locally from the, um, some anaesth- uh, um, society of anaesthetists or something like that in terms mm. of pain management. The, the college supports specialist GPs who, based on their clinical assessment, decline to prescribe or to issue a repeat prescription in response to patient requests for medicinal cannabis products that have not been approved as medicines by MedSafe and reminds specialist GPs that if they have concerns about prescribing or record keeping of a prescriber, they should talk to the prescriber directly in the first instance. And if they still have concerns, consider notifying the medical council or HDC. And it raises an issue, I guess, as this becomes um, more kind of acceptable in inverted commas, we are going to get an increasing number of patients requesting the products and whether whether we need or need to have within a practice somebody who has some expertise in prescribing so as not to be providing a barrier, but ultimately it is, does the evidence support the use? Um, so BPAC, um, I'll put a, a, a link to the, a really good BPAC article that was produced last year um, on prescribing of medicinal cannabis, and it covers most of the questions you'd want to ask about prescribing. Uh, notes that the Ministry of Health is constantly updating its medicinal, medicinal cannabis product website, and I keep an eye on that, and certainly there are uh, four or five times as many products available now than, than there were a year ago. Mm. But it's really important to note that these products, that are, the products that are listed there are, are only there because they've been verified as meeting the minimum quality standards. They're still unapproved medicines. Mm. So there's been no assessment of their safety or efficacy. So there is no approved um, CBD product currently available for prescribing. Every time you prescribe a CBD product, you are prescribing an unapproved medicine. It's just important to to realise that, and I, I point you then also to the MedSafe article on the use of unapproved medicines or approved medicines for unapproved conditions, which is reiterated in the Medical Council statement on good prescribing practice, um, and it outlines what theoretically you should be discussing with a patient every time you prescribe an unapproved medicine or an approved medicine for an unapproved condi- condition, and of course. We don't do that most of the time. I mean, I used to prescribe amitriptyline for back spasm on numerous occasions, but wouldn't, you know, didn't used to, to actually say, well, it's not actually approved for use in this situation, but there's evidence that it's effective, which is what mm. I should be doing. So is that, that those are the Section 29 medications? 
this in part, yeah. but they're all, but they're also those are the unapproved ones. But you've also got the um, use of an approved medis- medication for an unapproved right. condition. Right. So if and to, to find out what it's approved for, those are the indications listed in New Zealand formulary. Right. So basically, if it's not listed there, then and you're using it. So so, so if, for example, amitriptyline to be used for back as a pain modulating agent or or in back pain for muscle spasm, that's an unapproved use of an approved drug. And that's Section 29. Well, I think Section 29 refers more specifically to unapproved use of prescribing of unapproved medicines. Right. Okay. Because okay. They, yeah. they won't feature in, in New Zealand formulary. Right. Okay. Yeah. If that makes sense. But the but yeah. the um the discussion and consenting aspect applies to both of those situations. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, we this the same thing applies to medical equipment that we're using like the glucometer or that we the, the thing the um, medical device that we looked at last month uh, which records um hba1c full blood count and cholesterol or, or, or uric acid or uric something acid, that's right yeah there's for for two dollars a pop and a total cost of 69 dollars or something they um you, you can get that device in new zealand it's registered for use in new zealand but it doesn't have any quality standards around uh, around it the um it's it's simply there and then it's really left to the clinician to then decide that this is a med- a device or a medication that is going to be valuable in this particular clinical context and um you know which is that that, that isn't the process in lots of different countries you know where we we have a quite a bit of autonomy really from that perspective i think so I think MedSafe does approved devices. So that situation, you might be using an unapproved device for a, so, for an approved purpose, mightn't you? I suppose. Well, no. So it doesn't. It doesn't actually approve devices. It just registers that the fact that they're available in New Zealand. So it's not actually. Right. There's no. There's no. There's no approval process. They. But you can't. They are listed on a, on um, on MedSafe as being available in New Zealand. So those ones that are subsidised for the, the, the glucometers that are subsidised for diabetics, the, they simply don't, they haven't had some sort of approval process. That's right. Previously. Hmm, interesting. So, um, and I think this has been captured in the therapeutics bill, which again, um, may not last until Christmas. No, no. So, Very but, interesting. Um, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um <laughs> But the good news is that, uh, an interesting news is that from, I think it's from the 1st of December, or it might even be current, uh, that MedSafe, MedSafe has reclassified um, CBD from a prescription-only medicine to a restricted pharmacist-only medicine. Uh, and so it aligns with the, uh, with the Australian approach, made similar changes in 2020. Um, so that means a pharmacist can can pres- basically prescribe or provide uh, an approved CBD product. So reiterating, there are no, there are currently no approved CBD products. But when some are approved, uh, a pharmacist can, you know, suitably trained pharmacist can provide them to a patient. But there are uh, restrictions. They've got to be over eighteen, and the supply is restricted to medicines with dosing instructions for one hundred and fifty milligrams or less CBD per day, and containing not more than four four point five grams when sold in the manufacturer's original pack. Fantastic. Fantastic. I was so pleased that I, I tried CBD oil when I was in New York 
Um, it was available as an additive for my coffee in a an equivalent of Starbucks um, opposite the place where I was saying you got a little little sachet and you poured it into your coffee. And my family, who were with me at the time, were absolutely convinced I was much more chilled out that that day that I would have been otherwise. Oh. Which I, I I can't can't say that I felt any any different myself. But um, you know, is that, on why that... You missed, is that why you missed your plane? Is it? <laughs> That's why. <laughs> But it was, um, yeah. That's that's been my that's been my experiment. I didn't inhale. I didn't inhale. No, no. only the coffee fumes. Only the coffee fumes. Um, now the next one is I've put this in here. It's a, it's a bit of a have I been under a rock topic <laughs> because I I hadn't I hadn't I came across this basically because I um, in my HDC work there was a a complaint where a child had been admitted to hospital with a severe viral illness, um, intensive care for a period, um, managed to survive, was then administered the MMR vaccine and became extremely ill and, and died. Oh, uh, and then and then retrospectively, um, it was discovered this child had the if now one deficient if now one genetic deficiency. And then I then I so I looked at this and here's this statement from Tafata Aura released in 2020, but that last updated in June this year, which talks about the if now one deficiency. So essentially, it's an extremely rare immune disorder that um, basically stops you fighting viruses, requires genetic testing to be diagnosed, uh, and I don't know, um, I, I don't think it's readily available in New Zealand. I think the this, this sample had to be sent overseas. It was only discovered in 2019. It increases the risk of serious illness and death to an individual when they're exposed to certain viruses, including measles and COVID-19, but goodness. also increases the risk of severe reaction from some vaccines containing weakened live viruses, such as MMR, yellow fever, and possibly varicella vaccines. All other childhood vaccines on the schedule in New Zealand are safe. The issue is the mutation seems to be um, confined almost exclusively, not entirely, but almost exclusively to some Pacific groups, which are people with Samoan, Tongan, and Nuaean heritage or basically saying they, they could be significantly more risk of having the deficiency than the general population. The initial estimates are that the number of children with two Samoan parents who may be affected is one in every 6,450 births. Mm. So it's not totally insignificant. No. Um, but equivalent data in Tongan and Nguyen uh, populations is lacking, but there have been cases occurring or detected uh, when parents are Tongan or Nguyen. And the... the um, Information from Tafata Aura says this may roughly equate to one child per year born in Aotearoa, New Zealand, but much more work is needed. So it's a lot less common, say, than cystic fibrosis, which affects about one in every three and a half thousand births. Which is still reasonably, you know, pretty common. You know, you're 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 going to you're definitely going to come across people with this deficiency in your lifetime as a GP. You'd think. Yeah, which which brings me to the last point they made. Um, and again, it's quite topical given that we're really trying to push MMR vaccination at the moment and the whole issue of, of informed consent. So the the release, the, the um, TWA information says, healthcare providers may wish to inform um, Ainga or whānau of children with Samoan, Tongan and Nuaean heritage of the newly discovered risk as part of obtaining informed consent for the first dose of MMR at 12 months. It is important to also provide information about the risks associated with deciding not to vaccinate against MMR. Uh, and we know the risk of not vaccinating, the risks of not vaccinating are far greater than the risks of vaccinating. However, if an older sibling or relative had a severe illness following MMR, this should be discussed with immunisation experts. 
Um, well, I've so, the same rock as you, Dave, I think. Yeah, I would have thought that, that, that I mean, I don't know whether, whether I just didn't see something that came across my desk, but I would have thought maybe this would have been sent out with some degree of importance. But anyway, if now one deficiency. Thanks, Dave. The, um, we will, yeah, uh, we're going to have to do a bit of work socialising that one. Yeah. And again, yeah. I think, you know, it's it's probably a, a debatable one as to whether you should or shouldn't be discussing it. Uh, I'd be interested to see if the case does come, or with this case that, that I talked about before hasn't been processed yet, but if, it, it'd be interesting to see whether the rareness of the deficiency justifies mentioning it, especially if you balance up the impact it might have on the on the parental decision to vaccinate their child and the impl and the implications of that. I it's can, a real ethical, quite an ethical dilemma, really. I can also see parents saying, "Well, yes, I'm very, I'd be keen to have my child vaccinated, but I need, want to know about this. If I, the we've got a one in six and a half thousand chance of the child getting severely ill, can you please do a genetic screen for me beforehand? And um, the you know how how what's the mechanics of that?" Yeah, and that's what this um, information doesn't cover. I don't know how readily available, how expensive the test is. Yeah, and, and I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't imagine they're suddenly going to start testing all all twelve month olds of uh, Pacific Island heritage no. prior to vaccination. Something, something new to learn about. Always. Um, so <laughs> we go. We go from having babies to preventing babies. And this is uh, an emergency contraceptive pill update. So this, I'll put this in really from a uh, an article from issue 224 of the GP Research Review, which reviewed a Lancet article on combining paroxicam 40 milligrams, which we don't have in New Zealand. I don't think it's freely available in New Zealand now. It's certainly not subsidised, but but uh, it's not necessarily a class effect the thing I'm going to, it's not necessarily a, a individual drug effect that I'm going to discuss. Right. The combination of paroxysm 40 milligrams with your standard um, levonorgestrel uh, emergency contraceptive dose of 1.5 milligrams and concluded that the combination prevented 94.7% of expected pregnancies versus 63.4% with levonorgestrel plus placebo. Wow. So quite a significant improvement in efficacy. Um, there were no differences in advancement or delay of the next period, nor in the adverse event profile. So the the, the Bible of contraception, the UK FR, FSRH um, guidelines, they responded to the article. Just backing um, up there, the, the Bible of contraception, well, the, I, I mean, <laughs> is that a, as a, as a reformed Catholic, is that something that we're allowed to say? I don't know. The Bible of I'm using it in the terms of, uh, I guess, the source of all contraceptive wisdom. Source of all contraceptive. Okay, well, that's okay. Uh, so that might be better. Yeah. Less you controversial. Continue, continue. Um, so the Bible of contraception says the yeah, the source of all of all knowledge states okay. that that the um, levonorgestrel emergency contraceptive, the postenor, acts to delay ovulation until sperm from unprotected sex has already taken place and no longer viable thus preventing fertilization. That's great. Mm -hmm. There are not significant post-ovulatory contraceptive effects. Therefore, postenor can be effective only if taken early enough in the menstrual cycle to delay ovulation. So essentially, it's a waste of time in the second half of the of the cycle, which wow. which I kind of knew in the back of my mind, but it, but it jumped out at me again as I've never actually discussed with a woman I've given prescribed emergency contraception to of the fact that it's going to be 
because she's in the second half of her cycle, it's it's, not, it's actually not going to do anything. Oh, and essentially, she's very close to ovulation. You know, within a, a couple of days of ovulation, you know, the the efficacy may not be there. But anyway, that's that's just another another fact that most people probably know. But but it was just a reminder to me, and maybe something that that deserves discussion when you are offering the options of emergency contraception. So, which is why your first line should be uh, an IUD. A copper IUD, that's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So, going back to the trial, the, the rationale was that the prostaglandins support ovulation, fertilization, tubal function, and implantation, and COX inhibitors, which inhibit uh, prostaglandin production, could act synergistically with the levonorgestrel to affect ovulation and also have post ovulatory contraceptive effects. And it seems so. So, this is likely um, to be why it was more efficacious. But the study didn't compare the effectiveness of use prior to ovulation with use after ovulation, which it had intended to do, but for some reason, um, a lot of the subjects refused to have blood tests done, so they couldn't confirm right. when, when ovulation had occurred. Uh, and no comparison was made between individuals with higher and lower BMI and weights. Mm. Um, and that's just a reminder also that above, I can't remember the exact figure, but above... So 35 BMI, you meant to be doubling the dose of. Oh, I don't think it's. I think. I think it's. I think it's 26. 26. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. There's a figure in in um, New Zealand formula anyway. Yeah. So their their ultimate advice was that the levonorgestrel paroxicum combination could offer an alternative to use of levonorgestrel alone, but their current guidance regarding emergency contraception remains unchanged. And just a. Uh, uh, a link back to health, the current health pathways guidance on emergency contraception, which is essentially offer copper IUD unless contraindicated. It's the first choice of emergency contraception because it's the most effective. They talk about postanol being effective when taken as soon as possible after unprotected intercourse, preferably within 12 hours, but definitely within 72 hours mm. um, with a, with a protected uh, pregnancy rate after taking it of around 2.2%. Uh, then they say efficacy has to be demonstrated for up to 96 hours, but that's an unapproved indication. So essentially, I guess they're saying, well, it, it might still work for up to 96 hours, so therefore, you know, it's probably better than nothing. Mm. But again, uh, because that's an unapproved indication, that would require discussion with the patient that it's probably going to be far less efficacious and a copper IUD might be more appropriate depending on how keen they are to avoid pregnancy. Um, and there's no evidence that oral emergency contraception is effective if taken after ovulation or more than 96 hours after unprotected sexual intercourse. Hmm. So that's the second half of the cycle. Uh, but, and there's a really good, um, in the FSRH guidelines, there's a really good single-page algorithm which helps you to describe, uh, sorry, to prescribe appropriately. So it takes into account how long since last unprotected sexual intercourse, where they are in their cycle, whether they have had other episodes a little earlier of our protected intercourse and takes you through the guidance. It's slightly uh, UK specific in that they have an alternative drug, aliprostol, wow. uh, which is slightly more efficacious than levonorgestrel, but they also use levonorgestrel and refer to that in the algorithm. So just a handy, handy practical algorithm to maybe print off and have somewhere for, for reference. The um, Health Pathways guidance um, on all of the contraception issues has recently been updated and um, and, and and published. So, you know, the 
you know, I know that I know a lot of work went into ensuring that was aligned with the best practice guidelines within New Zealand. So, you know, definitely worth um, using that resource as well. Yeah, and these these certainly align with the um, the health pathways ones that I looked at. Certainly align with the UK ones. Yeah, cool. In, in terms of copper IUD being the the one to push. So from contraception to retention. Okay. Um, so this one, this is a quick one, just really based on a case I looked at recently, where a gentleman went into acute urinary retention. Uh, after being prescribed oxybutynin for urinary frequency, mm. and he had, and the notes quite clearly show, and he was told he had significant um, lower urinary tract symptoms, suggestive of bladder outflow issues, very poor stream and frequency. He wasn't provided with any information regarding the risk of urinary retention, and had googled the drug after he'd been in, in had his emergency catheterization, etc., and noted that the contraindications included significant bladder outflow obstruction. Yeah, contraindication to oxybutynin. So I, I just thought, if he'd been provided with the New Zealand Formulary Patient Information Leaflet, this might have reduced the risk of a complaint because uh, it refers to the potential side effect of trouble peeing. Inform your doctor. Mm. So this is before you, if you've been prescribed it, if you have trouble peeing, before you uh, inform your doctor, um, and also reminds the uh, reminds you to talk to your doctor before taking the drug if you have known prostate problems. Trouble is, I guess we give the we give the the pamphlet as the patient leaves, but and hope they're going to read it before they start taking the medication. But um... yeah, I mean, we 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 often refer to using these um, patient information leaflets from the from the formulary uh, in exactly that that context, don't we? And it gives it does give people another insight into potential sort of issues that they need to inform us about. So, but um, yeah, it's a uh, yeah, and it's you know. I, it's in, in a quite a readable, a readable form, and talks about other drugs that could cause issues or could interact with the with the one that you're prescribing. So it's just another layer of safety, I suppose, in terms of of safe prescribing and reducing risk of um, of medication related harm. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the list of drugs that might cause urinary retention goes on and on uh, <laughs> for about a page. Um, so obviously, anticholinergic agents, SSRIs, calcium channel blockers, opioids first-generation antihistamines, tricyclics, some NSAIDs, and many antipsychotics, including quetiapin. NSAIDs and is, is interesting, isn't it? And, and yeah. quetiapin, for those rest-home patients that we're using it for, for, you know, a little bit of night sedation, you know, we I, I can't remember, can't think that I would have thought about the impact on retention. So I think, or maybe that maybe all your, all your patients have been catheterized for the to make them easier to look after. Do you think that's probably that's also true? Yes. So the the last two kind of about aging in in some ways, which again okay. segues nicely from from bladder problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the first ones I've entitled I've titled advantages of retirement. Not that I'm encouraging people to retire because. Nothing personal in this, Dave. I'm sure <laughs> the workforce needs needs you. But this is a, an article um, again, New Zealand Research Review, issue two twenty five. It looked at the a study that looked at the associations of retirement with cardio, cardiovascular risk factors and disease. So quite a large study. One hundred seven thousand people aged fifty to seventy were included in the analysis, and followed up for a, a mean of around six point seven years. Mm-hmm. So there was a 2.2 percentage point decrease in the risk of heart disease and a 3 percentage point decrease in physical inactivity, so an increase in physical activity, among retirees compared with workers. So essentially comparing those that kept working 
over that between that um, 50 to 70 age group with those that retired. Yeah. And people with high educational levels, which could be some of us, um, retirement was associated with decreased risk of strokes, obesity, and physical inactivity. Okay. However, in people who retired from non-physical, uh, uh, sorry, in people who retired from non-physical labour, retirement was associated with reduced risks of heart disease, obesity, and physical in inactivity. But those who retired from physical labour were at increased risk of obesity. You're basically describing the majority of GPs in the country, Dave age between 50 and 70 who need to retire from jobs with low levels of physical activity. Yeah. Well, just no. maybe, maybe there's a glimmer of hope for getting your beach bod back once you retire. Those sort of <laughs> things. But, um... <laughs> I don't think I ever had a beach bod, Dave. I don't think I ever did. And then if we go beyond retirement and we, we have had our heart disease and we're in an old, an old um, rest home or in fact, um, for the very very aged population generally, HQSC have put out a really good resource uh, or updated the really good resource on the frailty guides. Mm -hmm. um, so again, there's a link in the in the snippets, and these cover these cover a really interesting and practical range of topics. So there are guides, there are legal and ethical guides. So a guide on assisted dying, advanced care planning, uh, enduring power of attorney, yeah. guides on acute care. So breathlessness, delirium, syncope and collapse, uh, falls, um, and then guides on various um, management of various clinical issues. Because they are they're meant to be practical, a practical resource for aged care facilities as well, there is quite significant involvement of how do, how do nursing staff and care staff fit into the, the various scenarios. But there's certainly clinical, good practical clinical information in these as well. And the one I just wanted to, um, to push was the um, deprescribing uh, frailty care guide. So it's, it's applicable to frail patients inside and outside the aged care facility environment and includes a tool and associated algorithm uh, which help to identify medications which are most often suitable for deprescribing and when stopping or continuing the drug might be helpful. So it's got a format of uh, looking at um, various classes of drugs. Yeah reasons you might want to deprescribe and then reasons you might want to where it might be appropriate to, to deprescribe where you might want to continue so quite a quite a good practical resource to have if you're doing a medication your three monthly medication review so so just for the people not we're looking at the screen there's a sort of so for lipids lowering medication there the because the main not be that you need a long duration of taking it for it to be of significant benefit and it does have a potential for calling muscle weakness and falls um you know maybe one to consider uh, in in deep 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 prescribing you know for people who've life expectancy is less is if they're but if people have got more than five years to live they've maybe had a stroke in the last couple of years and um, they've got peripheral vascular disease and symptoms that improve on a on a statin which is a, is an interesting concept that you know that might be a reason for continuing but otherwise you know, it gives you it gives you that level of detail around what when you're considering deeper deeper scrying. So many of our elderly patients are on, you know, five, ten more um, medications. Uh, this it does look like a really useful tool. I think if you've got access to a um, community pharmacist that will do medication reviews, that's great. But the decision support tool within this um, resource essentially, I think, takes you through what the pharmacist often does. Uh, but if you're if you're providing care to an aged care facility, you can get nursing staff 
to gather the information you need according to this to the algorithm and then it takes you through um, what to consider and yeah uh, what what medication changes you might want to make it, it doesn't say anything about adding in coenzyme q10 though dave no which well, that's you, could, I, you could stop maybe but um but that was that was that's been my experience of what the pharmacists often recommends when they do these medication reviews but maybe maybe that's just me maybe it depends on the, their cut sorry to be serious that's a that is a really useful resource and i totally respect me, i'm sure that many many clinical pharmacists would not recommend coenzyme q10 in those contexts um the good I, news, I, I withdraw and apologize i withdraw <laughs> yeah, and apologize it's appropriate the good the good news is uh AI um, on the horizon is the PolyScan tool, which has been developed in New Zealand. So it's a primary care IT tool to triage older adults with polypharmacy who prescribe potentially inappropriate medicines. Um, so there's been an initial study undertaken, which was published in the our, our GP journal, what's it called? Journal of Primary Care. Yeah. Uh, latest one involving uh, quite a small study, but it involved using the tool to review the medical records of 300 older patients. And uh, it's identified 3% with polypharmacy and indicators of potentially inappropriate medicine and five unique indicators were detected. These are consensus. It's from a tool where there's been consent, expert consensus over the, the, the list of or, uh, certain medications that are uh, commonly inappropriately prescribed. I think it was a Delphi method. So they were given um, various scores and these, I think they used the top nine yeah. scores or whatever. But the PolyScan achieved 100% sensitivity, specificity, and positive and negative predictive values. Not quite sure what they were predicting, but anyway, yeah. sounds like sounds like this this promise and hope for AI assistance in the future. Absolutely, I know that. And yeah, I mean, that's it, this these sort of things are only going to grow in facility and and accessibility as well. But you know, just being able to to quickly scan through your patient list and say, here are the on on those sort of figures um you know here are the 100 individuals who are potentially going to be have medications that's um inappropriately prescribed for you to you know set a plan around reviewing the doing medication reviews for you know that that by itself is going to be really useful because of course polypharmacy is one of the major causes of um iatrogenic harm and um, so anything we can do to sort of improve that sounds great absolutely but yeah, that's um, that's it. We've gone from medication to giving medica medication to stopping medication, really. Fantastic, Dave. So yes, as you say, we uh, looked at the available benefit for, for beneficiaries, available subsidies around otherwise non-subsidized medications. We touched on prescription or the college's recommendations around um, cannabis. A new disease, IFNAR1 deficiency, or new to the new to both of us certainly, and only discovered in 2019. So I don't think we should be overly should be beating ourselves up too much around around missing that one, but definitely something to to explore. The emergency contraceptive pill, and potentially, you know, adding in how adding in a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory would increase efficacy which um but a, but a clear reminder that um to use the copper iud as as first line uh, was something that I, I definitely take away from that urinary retention and quite surprising the range of medications that are associated with um with urinary retention and a reminder to use the new zealand formulary 
patient information leaflet when we're prescribing. Probably almost every time you prescribe something, certainly for the first time to somebody, print out the formulary guideline and, and, and give it to them. Make that your common practice, but ideally record that as well within the notes so that you've, you know, you've got some evidence that that, that, that information's been given. And then you, you've encouraged me to retire before I get too frail. If I do get too frail, then at least I can direct my healthcare providers to these uh, HQSC guides uh, to look after me. But it sounds like I'm, I'm definitely in that 50 to 70 group and, uh, and I've got a number of those risk factors. Probably time for me to hang up my stethoscope. <laughs> that wasn't the intention. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we, we're going to officially hang up the stethoscope of the podcast um, over December and um, give ourselves a, a Christmas break. And uh, um, I'll probably publish something in the December slot. I'm not quite sure what. I might sort of choose a favourite one from the past and, um, uh, and um, maybe one of the Joy in Practice podcasts that we did from seasons one or two. And then uh, otherwise we'll um, be back again in, in January. Thanks, everybody. Okay, Kakite. Happy Christmas. Thanks for listening. Please like and share this podcast if you found it useful. The show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed. A video version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Kakite Arnold.